Take your Bibles and look at Luke 14 for a moment, uh, just by way of introduction. We have been in Luke's gospel, you remember, and we've taken a little bit of an excursus as Luke 14 has given us a narrative that demands that we do this. You remember that in Luke 14, Jesus had been invited to this reception, and He's dealing with it in, in a way that uh, is gracious and yet forthright about what keeps people from the truth. And of course, in the narrative, it's obvious that He is exposing it at its core. There's all kinds of things that people throw up as arguments against the truth, but, but the real cul- culprit that blinds people to the truth is what Jesus is pointing out here. It is pride. It is pride. And you remember the scenario. It was, it was uh, all kinds of pharisaical dignitaries that had been invited to this meal, and Jesus had been invited as one of the rabbis. And, and in that event, you remember that <clears throat> Luke notes what was going on. The Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus, so that is pointed out in the text. And we noted the first sort of way that pride manifests itself in this particular scenario, and that is that it hates, it hates righteousness. So Jesus is there, and they, they want to catch Him because they hate the light that He brings. He is, in a word, the real deal, and it exposes their phoniness. And they don't like it. They haven't liked it, and it is ramping up as He makes His way to Jerusalem. And so that was the first thing we noted about the, the heart of someone who's blind to the truth, is that they hate righteousness. When the light comes, they run from it. They don't run toward it. We'll talk a little more about that this morning in a minute. We also noted that they, uh, like all uh, prideful people, they kind of set their own trap. They think they're clever. They think they can catch Christians or, in this case, Christ in some sort of mistake. Um, They wanted Him to violate the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath, and so they brought this guy into the room who who was um, diseased. He had an infirmity that was obvious to all, possibly on his way to it being fatal, and they knew that would tug on the heartstrings of this miracle worker who seemed to just heal anybody arbitrarily. And he always got around unclean people, which the Pharisees found detestable because they don't get around unclean people. They they always believed and taught Israel that diseased people were cursed by God. They would defile you in the righteousness that you bring to God, and so you don't get around them. But they invited this individual into the proximity and knew that Jesus would do something, hoping to catch him in a violation of the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. And in so doing, as we've seen every time we've reviewed it, they were fools. They were caught in their own trap because Jesus, in fact, did heal him. And they were hoping to say, see, you healed on the Sabbath, you must not be the Messiah. And yet, the very fact that he healed him proves he's the Messiah because that's precisely what the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would do. He would have power from on high as the Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He would heal. And in their blindness, trying to set a trap about their petty little interpretations of tradition, they lost sight of the truth. They were blinded to it and set their own trap. How did they do that? Why did they do that? Because as we saw also in this list of manifestations of pride, they were selective with the Scriptures. They had indeed upheld a version of how the Sabbath is applied, but as Jesus points out to them, even they weren't consistent. They're just selective. Anytime they want to take the law of God and put it over somebody else and raise themselves above them, they did that. 
And yet at the same time, behind the scenes, they just massage the scriptures and twist it and do whatever they wanted to do. Healing on the Sabbath was never for, forbidden by the law. They knew that. They would, they would gladly take care of a family member on the Sabbath if there was a desperate need. And here they were trying to hold Jesus to some sort of arbitrary traditional standard. So they, like all prideful people, use the scriptures to their own advantage and, and disobey it and defy it in all other ways convenient to them. We also saw something else that was happening. You remember they were taking the chief seats. You know, the host had his seat, and next to him was all the dignitaries, descending order of importance. They just took those seats. They didn't even wait for the host to assign them. Jesus himself could have taken the host's seat. Everyone in the room should have praised Christ, but he didn't take any of those. He just sat somewhere else, likely the lowest seat in the room, and just observed that they were taking the chief seats. And so you remember he rebukes them for that. He then rebuked the host and said, you, you are giving with an ulterior motive. You, you have the same kind of pride. When you throw a party like this, you do it for those people that you know you can get the same thing in return from them. You don't love to the, to the good of someone regardless of whether you get something back. No, your pride loves to have your back scratched as you scratch the back of the other. So you give with an ulterior motive, and then you pretend that it's real sacrifice, real righteousness. It's just pride. And so in looking at this particular section, we thought that it would be good then to just take a few weeks here and, and talk practically about this for Christians. Those in the room <clears throat> were part of a false gospel. But those who are in Christ now know, having come to Christ, what it means to open your life up and your sin to the Lord and say, I'm guilty. It is the ultimate act of humility. It is produced exclusively by the Spirit of God, for we saw last time that this must be a work of God to convict you, to draw you, to bring you. And yet, having come to Christ in that act of humility... Here we are living for Christ, we love His Word, we love His people, and yet we don't love His Word enough, we don't love His people enough, and we drift into the old patterns that were ours when we were pagans. We can become proud, it's why the New Covenant Scriptures tell us over and over again about this great problem of drifting into expressions of pride that will blind us to key truths that make us effective. We just sang, he will hold me fast. We can't be lost. A Christian cannot be lost. He cannot lose salvation. But what can happen is you can be rendered ineffective in your influence, a poor testimony to Christ. The Gentiles, that is to say unbelievers around you, might be caused to harden their hearts by the hypocrisy and pride of a Christian's life. And so we don't want to go there. We want to nurture humility. A very difficult part of living the Christian life is to be like our Lord. And yet, what are we told in Philippians 2? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so we've been looking at these pride crushers. Last week, we looked at the first two. The first was that if you're going to nurture humility in your life, you must then bring yourself under the lordship of Christ 
But more particularly, we expressed it this way. You must acknowledge that he is sovereign over all things. It's amazing to me how many times a believer, a, a true professing believer, will act as though God is not sovereign over all things. Whether it be a trial or a crisis, whether it be a financial difficulty, whether it be a, a relationship that's challenging, or whether it just be ambition in your life where you want to accomplish something and you just can't seem to get things to map out the way you want, Christians at times do not acknowledge on a daily basis that everything we have and everything we enjoy is ordained of God. And it is not based upon human ingenuity or autonomy. It cannot be. Ephesians 1.11, we looked at it last time. He works all things after the counsel of His will. It is humbling to know that every day you live as a moral agent, making choices which affect your life, you do so under the umbrella of His sovereign power and ordained will. All our days were ordained before time began, when there wasn't even yet one day lived. It's humbling. It's humbling to know that He lets evil run its course, and that evil touches our lives. It's humbling. He is not the author of anything evil, and yet He is sovereign over it. He's God. And to mess around with the notion that He's not is folly, it's pride. He, in fact, is sovereign over your salvation. When you look at the fact that you are in Christ, you must note that it is God that draws. You must note it is God that elects and God that predestines. Let me just encourage you that if you struggle with those doctrines wherein there is great tension, such as the doctrine of predestination and election, I encourage you to go to the Scriptures and acknowledge what the Scriptures say and just read it and read it not just once, but over and over again until your heart is brought underneath it. If you've been a part of a theological system or grown up in a sentimental sort of notion that God is not sovereign over such things, you have missed the point of human depravity in Scripture, and therefore you do not have a right understanding of the grace of God that has saved you. And may I remind you that on a practical level, if you don't have a right understanding of the grace of God that saved you, your worship isn't what it could be. For to know that God is sovereign in salvation and to know how depraved and dead we were and to know that He must quicken us is to know the grace of God at a deeper level and to worship at greater heights. And, and I'm encouraging you, do not resist things in the Bible merely because they have tension in the doctrine. Don't do that. That's not humble. That is prideful. And there's a cost to that. We'll talk more about that as well this morning. The second pride crusher we looked at last week was that we are to learn everything the Scripture says about the cross. And by learn, I mean own it, embrace it, believe it. Go to the Scriptures and learn everything you can learn about the work on the cross because this teaches us what must have happened, what was necessary. You must understand the necessity of the cross, our sin. Yes, Christ was murdered unjustly. The Jews conspired against Him, and Israel handed Him over to godless men, the book of Acts says in Peter's first sermon. And yes, at the hands of godless men and a Pharisaical lost generation in Israel, Christ was crucified. 
And yet, every one of us must acknowledge, if you're in Christ, that it was my sin that made it necessary. And it wasn't an act of humanitarian goodness. It wasn't a display of sacrifice on an earthly level. Indeed, he suffered, but that wasn't the point. Remember the old films that they make about Jesus and Jesus of Nazareth and then even <clears throat> the Passion some years ago? You go to those things and everyone's all about, <clears throat> excuse me, the human suffering, you know, the physical suffering. And a movie nowadays can have special effects and make it pretty bloody. And of course, we're gripped by all of the sense of human suffering, but that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the core issue. And that film completely, utterly missed it. That on the cross, it was my sin that held the innocent Son of God there. And He drank the cup of His Father's wrath and was crushed for my sin. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says it pleased the Father to crush Him for my iniquity. This just destroys pride when you learn about it and you learn the depths of it and you study the atonement and you study Christ's innocence, you study His purity, you study His loveliness and how much His Father loved Him and how much He loved His Father. You study that and you're gripped by it and you go to Philippians 2 and you study the incarnation. His coming here was humiliating enough and then His becoming a, the man among us and suffering insults at the hands of wicked sinners over whom he could have presided with authority right then and there. And he said nothing. He was silent like a sheep before its shearers. And then he goes to the cross, suffering the ignominy of the cross. It is such a devastating thing to hang on a tree. It was the most cursed anyone could imagine to be suspended between heaven and earth on behalf of sinners and to bear a guilt not your own. You study that. You study the severity of divine wrath against sin. You study the totality that was required. He had to go all the way to death, and he couldn't just die any way. He had to die the way God wanted him to die, and he had to die by shedding his blood. Indeed, it was irrevocable because once exalted and ascended into heaven, it would mean our resurrection. He went all the way, loved us to the nth degree, and you heard it in his high priestly prayer as I read earlier, Father, I want them where I am to see my glory. This is humbling. I want to talk about a third principle that shatters our pride every day. I'm going to call it this, open your heart to the Spirit's renewal Open your heart to the Spirit's renewal. It comes from a very familiar text to us, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, which tells us, if you take your Bibles and look there for a moment, it tells us what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. And these are terms we don't like, typically. We don't like it. If somebody says that... Um, an individual needs a rebuke, we immediately wince. We don't like the idea of peer rebuke. We don't like the idea of rebuke at all. And when the term is used, almost immediately in our soft culture, we, we think things like, oh, that's harsh. 
That's just harsh, a rebuke. Somebody was rebuked. Or we might use the word reproof. Somebody was reproved. We like softer terms, and, and even the NAS translates the third term here in 2 Timothy 3.16 as correction. It is the word for correction, but it, it involves much more than the soft way we like to use the term. We like to use the term correction because it's softer than rebuke and reproof. And yet here, correction does indeed involve bringing the truth to bear upon things that need to change. And there are soft passages that help you change, and there are hard passages that help us change. It's all encompassing, comprehensive correction. And then training in righteousness. Well, that sounds sweet. I get to be trained in righteousness. But yet how difficult it is to be trained in righteousness because I'm unrighteous. I have unrighteous habits, unrighteous thinking, unrighteous desires and motives. And and so the Spirit of God, by His own inspiration, by His own divine work, puts the apostle's pen to writing this formula. This is what the Spirit is doing. This is His process. When you come to the Scriptures, when I come to the Scriptures, we are to open our hearts to a renewal process that involves these elements, all of them. And notice how comprehensive it is. Verse 17 says, here's the target the Spirit of God is bringing, that the man of God may be adequate, that the Christian you could put in there may be adequate and equipped for every good work. He's not going to leave anything out. He's not going to let you get away with something that would harm your influence, your light for Christ. He is not going to let some some back alley thing go on and on and on without dealing with it. He is not going to allow you to, to stay hidden and closed. He loves his people. He delights in his children. And so as Hebrews 12 says, he's going to bring the discipline of the Lord, which won't seem pleasant at the time, but sorrowful. And yet afterward, so I love it. He doesn't say, if you're willing. He just says, afterward. In other words, he's going to do this work whether you as a Christian like it or not. He is our parent, and afterward, those who have been trained by it, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. And so here is a way to nurture humility. When the Spirit is renewing you in these categories, you're to open your heart to it. Our evangelical culture does not tolerate much of these elements anymore. In fact, we have turned preaching and shepherding into little more than um, guidance counselors that come and tell us what we want to hear and give us platitudes that are based upon human self-actualization and human goodness and notions that we need to have ourselves handled with all of this coddling because we just can't take hearing about the areas we must grow in. That is evangelicalism. And when you um, read what's being taught to teachers and disciplers and shepherds and 
counselors in today's evangelical church, you, you, you see that sort of theme repeating itself over and over again. You, you see people saying, look, we need to start with, with the felt needs of a congregation. I mean, tell me what you feel you need, and I will sort of touch on that issue, and I'll touch lightly on it, and I'll speak to it a little bit. I might even try to turn it a little bit in some, some way that challenges you. Oh, we love that word, challenge. I'm just going to challenge you gently. And all we're doing is feeding them earthly opinions, human junk food passed off as something spiritual from which they cannot grow. The Spirit doesn't want to do that, and the Spirit wants to do a far more comprehensive work, and He does it in these ways. He rebukes our lives, reproves us, corrects us, and trains us in righteousness, and He has a comprehensive plan. The way to nurture humility in your practical life is that when you hear the truth, you search the Scriptures, you watch it unfold on the pages of God's Word, and you refrain from the flesh, what the flesh wants to do with the truth. I know what the flesh wants to do with the truth. When you hear the truth, you're faced with a response, and the flesh wants to think about it but go no further. Look, thinking about the truth will do nothing for you. There's a whole sanctification model that says contemplate, contemplate, contemplate. Look, contemplating the truth will do nothing for a faithless heart. You must believe what you contemplate. And Satan will love you to do your two-hour quiet time Bible studies as long as all you do is think about it and never believe it. That's victory for him. I know what the flesh wants to do. We hear the truth. We might even get a little excited about it and affirm it, but we, we then survey our life and say, I'm pretty much nailing that one. I'm okay on there. Look, the Spirit isn't interested in bringing the truth to you in any sermon form or any discipleship form so that you can say, yeah, I got that one. Nailed that. Yep, that, that. I worked on that last year, and I don't have to work on that one again. It's like the parent, you know, who deals with a four-year-old that's lying, and they finally get the four-year-old to stop lying. They finally were done with that. No. No, and then we tell parents it's going to come up at six years old, and then it's going to come up at seven, eight again, yeah, and then 10. Whoa, it gets serious. And in the teen years, deception is exploding all over the place. So keep building, but don't imagine that there isn't a comprehensive plan that's going to be dealing with this again. So that's what the flesh wants to do when it hears the truth. It wants to go no further with it or get excited about it, but then survey your life and sort of mitigate against your need for a reproof or a rebuke or a correction. Some of you take copious notes when you hear sermons. So I ask you, where are those notes? Where do they go? It's hilarious. People have notebooks with files of them, and they haven't been through those things since the Sunday they wrote them, some of them. Uh, this, this is not helpful. It's what the flesh wants to do. Why? Because you can always go over there and say, look, I take notes. I got this. I'm a churchgoer. I'm a Christian. I've got notebooks. And my thumbs are flying as fast as I can taking notes on my little phone. Where are those files? Do you go back through them for the sake of the Spirit's renewal to rebuke and reprove and exhort? There's another problem 
And this one would maybe go a little bit tighter down into the human heart. There's another problem. When we hear the truth, we sometimes hear things that are going to confront us, but we take offense in our hearts because it cuts across the grain of some, something we've believed, something we've held, some area we've lived uh, a certain way for a long time. So there's a long-standing way that we think, and when we hear the truth, we're not open to the Spirit at first. We are resistant to the Spirit. If you want to nurture humility, get rid of that resistance. Come to a Bible study or your study or, or church service or your counseling session. Just pray before you go in. Lord, open my eyes. Make me soft to this. Get rid of the resistance that I have. If you're going to come at an area, help me not to go around it, to resist it, to take offense. Sometimes our greatest struggle is to hide from the strongest beams that come from the light of Scripture, to just hide from it because we don't want to face the weakness. We cherish certain areas of our lives. If we're honest, sometimes we learn something from the Word and, and literally it's about, to, it's about to take one of our little idolatries to which we bow. It's about to take it and, and expose it for what it is, and we just don't like that. So, here you have a way to nurture humility. So, what do we do? Well, notice the terminology. It is for reproof. Um, this is, uh, or rebuke would be maybe some of your translation's first word, and then reproof the second one. Depends. Sometimes they're interchangeable. But rebuke, this is uh, basically a term that would indicate that the Spirit of God is going to say to you in your conscience by the power of His Word, you're wrong. You're not right, you're wrong. And therefore, you're sinful. You're sinning. Uh, nurturing humility, Beloved, means to accept that kind of renewal work on the part of the Spirit. Accept that those are the terms you need to use. Don't call it something else. Well, I really was convicted by the Spirit about the weaknesses I have. We like the word weakness. Oh, I have weaknesses. We don't often use the terminology that the Bible uses. So someone says, well, what's the particular sin? And let's say you're in James chapter 3, and it's talking about jealousy and selfish ambition. You soften a little bit. Well... Selfish ambition, I mean, that passage, that's a great passage. I'm, I'm somewhat competitive. Yeah, I can be competitive. You're selfish. You have selfish ambition. Why don't you just call it what it is? I want to nurture some humility. There you go. Call it what it is. Or, yeah, the Scriptures say I'm supposed to be gentle and, and uh, yeah, I can... You know, I, I don't step on people, but I'm an A-type personality, so. What, what are we doing? Just backing it off. The Spirit wants to renew us by reproving, rebuking. You're wrong. You're in sin. Now, I'm not saying that the Spirit of God uh, brings the same level all the time of exposure because in the Lord's grace, He, he doesn't expose every sin to us that, that we completely sin in every day. I mean... He knows his sheep. He has to 
feed us with nutritious things, and He has to uh, help us with our infirmities one at a time, and He knows our frame, and He knows that we're mere dust, and if left to ourselves, we'll, we'll stumble. But what He doesn't want us to do is soften what He's doing in our life by, by not accepting when He says that's a sin. Don't redefine it. Don't make it something less than it is. It's a sin. Uh, in counseling, it often happens where we'll, we'll just be reading the Scriptures, and, and we at times, when we're hearing the Word of God in all of its uh, unvarnished language, uh, it's very difficult to just accept that it is the human heart, it is the fallen condition to hide from our guilt, to hide our guiltiness, to hide the blatant nature of it, to hide the, the exposed uh, indignities of it, the embarrassing nature of it. It's our flesh that wants to hide. If you want to nurture humility, just acknowledge that's the case. Yeah, I don't like the rebuke element. The reproof side of it, or just looking at the next term there, which some of you might, might have as reproof, some of you might have as teaching, teaching and reproof, rebuke and reproof. These are, these are in our English language somewhat synonymic, but here you have the idea that he's going to tell you what the consequences were, and you have to own the consequences. So the rebuke is you're wrong, you're in sin. The reproof is here's what you must do, here's where you need to go. We used to do that with our kids just as a pattern in the home, disciplining them. What did you do? I want to see if they're going to name the sin according to Scripture. And what should you have done? That is to say, what does the Scripture say are the implications? So what is the consequence when you don't do what the Scriptures say? And they have to sort of name and lay out the consequence. That's essentially what the Scriptures do. That's what the Spirit does. He brings the conviction, the rebuke, you're wrong, you're in sin. Here is the standard, so I'm giving you reproof to show you what you should have done, and I'm, I'm letting you know that these consequences are just. They are just. When you're truly penitent and soft and pliable to the Spirit's renewal, when there's humility cultivated in your heart, you are, as we read in Psalm 51, like David, who said, you are just when you judge, O God. Humility is manifested in this work of the Spirit, when you are able to articulate, yes, the, the, the thing the Spirit had to do, the work the Lord had to do to keep me from this, the trial He's had to put me in to humble me, the lengthy affliction He's had to give me over here to keep me from exalting myself. He, he has to do it. He's just to do it. He loves me in His doing it. He receives those whom He disciplines. I, I understand that I embrace it, but I, I deserved this. My life needed this. It was necessary because I sinned, and I, I wasn't dealing with it. I'm not dealing with it, and God has helped me, and these are my consequences, and they're right and good, and you are just. In other words, humility exonerates God. Humility proclaims Him as right. Humility says that the Spirit's conviction was good and needed. Note also here, correction, correction. This is uh, anything in a process 
necessary to change this area. So you could look at the consequences for a sin, or you could sort of broaden it to not only include consequences, but just the pressure the Lord brings anyway. The word for discipline in the book of Hebrews is paideia, and it, it's a word that literally can just mean pressure. God puts us in a pressure cooker of life and circumstances to increase our faith and our virtue. And so that's the correction idea here. Any process by which He's going to help us eliminate things that dishonor Christ and come to please the Lord all the more. So that's what He's doing in the correction process. And a humble heart opens to the Spirit's renewal in the correction process. Lord, what is the process you want me to go through? What is it? What is it that you want me to know in this process? How do you want me to open myself up to it? What areas of long-term life habits do I need to seriously look at, concern myself with? What relationships do I need to reevaluate and think through? What habits of my heart and thinking do I need to examine and set forth a process by which you're going to help me put to death by your Spirit these things, old appetites, unredeemed motives, things of the flesh that drive us into habits of life that make things ineffective. In, in counseling, the only effective way for change is to see you come to the place where you believe the Scriptures by faith, but sometimes just getting you to the place where you're at that crisis of faith involves helping you identify what is it that are the patterns of your life and what are the triggers that make them happen, things maybe you're not looking at. And this is part of the correction process. So we go to the Scriptures and we ask the Spirit of God to show you, uh, as He often does in the Hebrews 4.12 sense, separating intention and thought. He wants you to know how you think. Is it biblical? What are your motives? Are they biblical? What are your affections? Do you desire the right things? Where do you go? What are your choices? What are your habits of, of reasoning? How do you make decisions? We're going to examine it in light of Scripture so that in the correction process, you can put a process in place or open yourself up to the Lord's process to change that. And we've talked about that before in our sanctification series, but I just wanted to reiterate it here that if you want to nurture humility, you're open to the rebuke, you're wrong, to the reproof, here are the consequences, and to the correction, here's the process needed for change. And then notice the Word of God itself is profitable for training us in righteousness. So this is to say that in this whole process, the Spirit wants us to measure it by whether or not we are increasing in holiness. Again, just pointing out some of the subtle errors of today, the whole new sanctification movement that's hyper-grace just basically says, look, forget the mess that's in front of you. Just contemplate what happened at the cross. Jesus has already done it for you. And in the sheer contemplation of it, you will see some affections and emotions cranked up about Christ and sanctification will just happen. That is not what the Scriptures teach. Sanctification is not going to happen without the Spirit's power and without you having been saved by the Lord and His work on the cross, but it will not happen without you by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. How do you know? How do you measure it? Increasing righteousness. 
Some of the new sanctification movement said, don't worry about whether you're increasing in righteousness. Righteous deeds is, is not a necessary consequence of your justification, so they claim. But it is. Because to say that it's not a necessary consequence is to say that it isn't what the Spirit wants. But the fact is, we see in this passage, it's exactly what the Spirit wants. He, by His Word, is reproving, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness for an adequacy in every good work. He is not finished until He has completed the work, and it won't end until we meet our Lord and are perfected in holiness. So, when you hear the truth, we are to open our hearts to the Spirit's renewing process in these ways. There is a training in righteousness. The Scriptures are adequate for it. The Word of God, your response to it. And and so, if you think about it, just survey your life for a moment. Why is it that in some ways there are areas of our lives that not just plague us, but we've never really seemed to gain ground in. We've never really seemed to to look back and, and see a notable new righteousness that is blooming in that area. Well, it's largely due to pride. When you hear the Word of God in those areas, you... You don't really open your heart to the Spirit's renewal process the way that you could and should. This is how we change. This is how we nurture humility, to open yourself to this process. And when opening yourself to this process, the Spirit of God promises that He will complete this work. He will make you equipped for every good work. He will make you adequate. This is... His promise. This is what He says He will do. And He's already shed the love of God abroad in our hearts, Romans 5. He's already equipped us with new inclinations, Romans 8. And He's already told us that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh by Him, by His power. In the church today, uh, It seems at times we have seasons where the church acts as though the Spirit of God is unwilling or just capricious. I'll give it to this person. I won't dole the power out to this individual. Listen, you cannot get any more of the Spirit than you've been given at conversion. You don't need any more of of His presence in your life. He is there completely and utterly, sealed you. You are set for your inheritance, and He is now at war with the old unredeemed desires that live within us and wage war with the Spirit. He's there. You don't need any more of His presence. You need the release of more of His power, and that comes one way, by faith, by believing the Scriptures. And so if you're closed to the rebuking and the reproving and the correcting and training in righteousness, then you are not actually believing the Scriptures. You're you're believing that you can get along on your own in the flesh and that whatever the Spirit has given, you're going to find ways to blame Him or blame His Word or blame God the Father or blame circumstances or someone else or life. You're going to be a professional excuse maker in your life 
and your influence is going to be far less than God intends. He is not stingy with his power. We do not access it by being controlled by the Spirit of God because we are not open to his rebuke and reproof. And, and why would we be? The church has been awash in a sea of this kind of insipid stuff, this soft peddling of these issues, this um, sense in our culture that we've been so pop-psychologized that you can't ever say anything hard or disagreeable to anyone. Well, I, I don't want to say anything hard and disagreeable to anyone, but I want the Lord to say what He wants to say. And if the human flesh of our lives says it's harsh and overbearing, the problem is with us. This is God speaking. This is His Word. And it is profitable for these things. And so in our list of ways to nurture humility, here is one of the key and very practical aspects of our Christian life. We are to submit to the Lordship of Christ. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over it all. It's humble to acknowledge that, live by that, and whatever's going on in your life, just bring yourself under it. Ask God for His grace to bring your heart under His Lordship and His sovereign plan as He works it out, whatever it may be, even if it involves something you didn't anticipate and which breaks your heart. The Lord is close to those whose hearts are breaking, the psalmist said. And if you want to nurture humility, then learn everything you can about your depravity and the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, the necessity that drove him to the cross. Learn everything you can about what he did in atoning for our sin. Learn everything you can about the grace of it, the sovereign grace of it. And then know how the Spirit works. And... Open your heart to the renewal of the Spirit as He works. And if He rebukes our hearts, Lord, help us be open. Help us believe it. If He reproves us and shows us what we should have done, then help us, Lord, to be open to that. And where He is correcting, where He's putting in place a, a life change that will help us stay strong and keep us from the evil one, then and we do those means of grace in the Scriptures. We practice those in our lives. We set up for the promoting of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. And then righteousness is the goal. We, we begin to measure it like that and, and be honest. Uh, over here in this area, I'm not righteous. I'm not like Christ in this area the way that I could be. I know that because I've fought the Lord in this area over and over and over and over again. And, and I'm stubborn. My heart is stubborn. And God knows that. He keeps convicting me of it. And I, I've not been open to his renewal in this area. Lord, make me open. Make me open. Strengthen my faith. Because I know you're going to win anyway. <laughs> the Lord is going to win. He is going to complete the work he began. He is going to chasten us until... We are trained in righteousness. Why? Because He loves those whom He disciplines. And He gave us His Word. What a miraculous thing. You realize when you open it, it is the Spirit's work. It's a miracle to open this and have the content come to a, the mind of Christ within us by the Spirit and be open to its work. This is our thrill every day, and it is a very hard work. So 
Um, if you want to tell one another how hard it is to live the Christian life, okay, but quickly get past that and get down to the business of, Lord, help me be honest with this process so that I may grow and bring glory to you. Open your heart to the Spirit's renewal and watch the Lord work humility in your life. Bow with me for a word of prayer.